So sinner, come without qualification. Come with your sin. Come with your baggage. Come with all of your trauma. Stop making excuses for your sin. Embrace the grace of God today. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Alright, well let's get our Bibles out and open to Romans chapter 11. God continues to do great things among us, and I've just loved this series as we've continued through the book of Romans, and specifically this little mini-series through Romans 9, 10, and 11. If this is your first Sunday with us, welcome. We teach verse by verse through the scriptures, and we continue today in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 12. So look with me at verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. For if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us the scriptures. We thank you, Lord, that heaven and earth will pass away, but Lord, your word will never pass away. And so, Lord, this morning we approach the scriptures with humility, realizing uh, some of these texts are difficult. We ask Holy Spirit to be our teacher. We ask, Lord, that you'd be glorified through this time as we open up your word, as we ask you to open our hearts to the things of God, that we would, would be equipped, that we would be commissioned out today with the power of the Spirit to obey. So, Lord, we thank you that as we've learned, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Thank you, Lord, for saving us by your mercies. And Lord, now we turn our attention to your word. May we lean forward and study it, and may the distractions be limited so that we can learn much. It's in Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, we live in a day, we live in an age where there's something called cancel culture. Have you heard of this? 
cancel culture has risen to a fever pitch. And here's what cancel culture is. If you disagree with me in anything that I am about, or I disagree with you, and we disagree about anything, well, then I'm going to cancel you, or you're going to cancel me. Chick-fil-A years ago affirmed biblical marriage, and many from the LGBTQ plus community canceled the greatest chicken restaurant under heaven. It was a sad day. Uh, I had some friends who said, don't ever, ever talk about, you know, that cursed name, Chick-fil-A, uh, just because they approved uh, or affirmed biblical marriage. Now, on the flip side, uh, many were in distress over Target and Starbucks' attitude on gender and sexuality and decided to vote with their feet and never purchase from Target or buy that mocha frappa latte from the Seattle coffee chain ever again. But canceling is more than just selective capitalism, which is where you say, I have the freedom to not go to that establishment. Canceling is more than that. It's more encompassing. It's when you cut off anything that person or that organization has to say, along with anyone or anything even remotely associated with it. And Christians, you and I, as followers of Jesus, are being canceled today. If you haven't figured that out, you haven't been online. We're being canceled today because of what we believe the Bible actually says, what it actually teaches. So this should not come as a surprise to us. But see, there's a tough question that Paul essentially asks at the beginning of Romans 11. And he takes much of the chapter, which we're going to spend the next several weeks looking through, to answer this question. Here's the question on the screen. Has God canceled Israel or did God cancel Israel? As we continue our series through Romans 9, 10, and 11, we are looking specifically at this theme of God's sovereign purpose. And we saw last week at the end of chapter 10 that Israel has stubbornly refused to obey. They've stubbornly refused to submit to the gospel, even though she had been faithfully preached to and lovingly pursued by God for generations. We learned that that could be us in the last few weeks. You could be sitting in a church service and have heard the gospel many times, and yet you have not submitted your life to Jesus Christ. And we learned last week that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And Paul makes the argument, Israel has certainly heard. Certainly Israel has heard of Jesus the Messiah. But what has she done with him? She's rejected him. And therefore, the next question Paul asks is, well, then has God rejected her? Has God canceled Israel completely? And what we're going to see today is three specific things. So if you're taking note, jot these down or take a photo of the slide. We're going to see in verses 1 through 6 the remnant, that there is actually a plan of God for a remnant of people. We're going to see the rest, and that doesn't mean taking a break. That means the rest of the people, verses 7 through 10. And then we're going to see the glorious riches in verses 11 and 12. Now, as we study this together, I want to keep kind of in our minds this morning, that what we're doing here is not how Paul originally intended his letter to be understood. He didn't intend for his letter to be stopped in the middle of a section and to be studied for hours and hours at a time, and then the next week or two get on to the... He just wrote it in one sweeping idea. And so what we're doing is we're studying this letter in small chunks, small little, if you could, streams of thought. And you know how this is when you're texting someone and then you accidentally hit send right in the middle of a paragraph and, and it t- or someone interrupts you and you don't have time to finish your train of thought and the person's just waiting for you. If you've been on the waiting end of that, you have the text bubble anxiety of the dot, dot, dot coming. Well, when are they going to respond? And then they don't. 
And, and so we're kind of in the middle of Paul's train of thought. And my fear is that some of you have been serving in kids ministry, which we applaud you and thank you. Our members are all involved at some level in serving in kids or in hospitality. Or maybe you've been traveling. Maybe you've missed a week or two. My fear is that you haven't had the full train of thought. Uh, And so we have to keep in mind that Romans 9 through 11 is a series of thoughts that build upon one another. And some of us have missed some of it. And the greater context of these verses is the sovereign mercy of God, who's sovereign over our salvation. And this section is a case study in Israel. And almost every week we've had a word of warning alongside a word of encouragement. And we've really seen, especially last week, that God has been standing, even Paul says, all day long with his arms open to welcome, to receive what he describes as a disobedient and foolish people. And so the question is, will these people receive him? Will they come to his open arms or will their backs be turned away forever? Will God say, I'm done with them? And if that is the case, then what happened to the promise God made to Abraham? Has God failed them or have they failed him? So that's where we're going to look at today is the first 12 verses. And we're going to begin with the remnant. So look with me at verse 1. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? What is his answer, church? What is his answer? Tell me from the text. By no means. Now, one commentary um, helpfully explains that Paul answers his own question, has God rejected his people, with four pieces of evidence. I'd love for you to jot these down. Four pieces of evidence that show us that no, God has not rejected his people. So the first one is personal. And you guys can jot these down. The first one's personal. If you look at the rest of verse 1, Paul gives you that personal reason why God has not rejected Israel. He says, I myself am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Notice Paul says, I myself. And you might think of Saul the persecutor, Saul the blasphemer, Saul the one who was attacking the church. He says, I myself. I myself am an Israelite. I'm a man who can trace my lineage back to Abraham, even back to that small, significant tribe of Benjamin. And yet, Paul says, God hasn't rejected me. And and if anyone stands as a test case for obstinate Israel, Paul says, that's me. And God hasn't rejected me. In fact, if you look on the screen, Paul said this in Romans 1, 12 through 17, which is almost Romans 9 through 11 in a little microcosm. Look at these verses. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So just listen to it. It's not going to be on the screen. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But Paul says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Isn't that glorious good news? He came into the world to save sinners, Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then Paul breaks into worship and just says, Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, the hostile, 
blaspheming, hardened Jew basically says, if God can bring me, a person in that state, and, and even some arrogant Gentiles, he can believe us, or he can, he can uh, allow us to be brought into faith, uh, then we can ultimately realize this is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story for the Gentiles, and it's not the end of the story for some of the hardened Jews in the synagogue. So Paul says the, basically the first bit of, of evidence is personal. But the second is theological. Look at verse 2 with me. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul reminds us that God foreknew his people. You guys remember from Romans 8.29 that we learn this idea of foreknow means to love beforehand. So this argument is theological. When Paul says he's not rejected his people, we're talking about true Israel. As we learned last week, that's a, or last uh, chapter, that's a group within the larger group. And God would not reject the entire nation. He's always been faithful to preserve some. So the second point's theological, but then he goes biblical. And look at the rest of verse 2. He says, don't you know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? And then he quotes the prayer that Elijah prayed in 1 Kings 19, verses 10 and 14. Now, if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 19, this is a very dark time in Israel's history. This is when apostasy reigned. This is when Ahab and Jezebel were ruling. This is when Baal worship was enforced by the throne. Can you imagine? From the throne of Israel, they're enforcing false idolatrous worship. And you guys remember the story, Elijah had just had that, that remarkable Mount Carmel showdown. Remember, he had had that showdown with the prophets of Baal. And he's like, maybe Baal's asleep. Why don't you pray a little bit louder? And they begin to cut themselves and, and nothing. And then ultimately, God rains down fire. And, uh, and of course, we missed this part in Sunday school, but Elijah cuts down all the prophets of Baal with the sword. Uh, and then after that, the threat of Jezebel. She's like, I'm going to snuff this guy off the planet by the end of the day. And this threat, after a splendid victory, leads Elijah to flee, to run and hide in a cave. You guys remember that, that time he's in the cave? He begins to pray, and, and God wasn't in the earthquake, wasn't in the storm, so to speak, uh, but was in the still small voice. But as Elijah begins to pray, his prayer is actually theologically wrong. His prayer is, I alone am left. And sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? As you pray, you just go, Lord, I'm the only Christian left on the planet. Everyone else is sold out. I'm the only one at my work. I'm the only one in Bradenton who's actually faithful to Jesus. And, and you know that's wrong. That's incorrect. And, and Elijah's wrong here. Uh, and I'm so thankful while we're on this topic that the scriptures include this mistake. The Bible includes Elijah's incorrect prayer, and God corrects him. I'm so thankful for that, that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat the men and women that it gives an account of or clean up their mistakes in any way. That's one of the reasons we should have confidence in the Bible, because in ancient folklore, you would, you would kind of, uh, you would whitewash your hero and all of their flaws, and this shows us that the people in the scriptures are historically real, because the account is simply a historical record of what actually took place. Instead of trying to make the people in the scriptures look good, then you know it's not real. And so uh, as we look at God's response, God's, re God's response to Elijah is actually, uh, I have more than one faithful man. 
If you're keeping count, Elijah, there's really 7,001. I have more than 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to Baal. And though Elijah was calling on God and praying against Israel, God says, well, actually within Israel, within the larger community, there's actually a remnant, a smaller community, 7,000 of the faithful. And though Elijah in the cave was completely ignorant of this remnant, God had still reserved for himself thousands and thousands and thousands of faithful men. And so Paul is reminding us that even though we may not see the remnant, visibly God is still at work. He was at work in the time of Elijah. Well, the fourth and final evidence of this, not only personal, theological, and biblical, is contemporary. Look at verse 5. Paul says, so too at the present time, there is a remnant. So not that there was, there is today a remnant, but notice it's chosen by grace. Verse 6, if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So notice that Paul says at the present time, meaning in his day, in his age, in his time, there is a sizable group of believing Jews. In fact, if you jot this verse down, Acts 21.20, in Acts 21, James reports there are, quote, many thousands among the Jews who have believed. This was happening in the first century. God's promises to Abraham were not in jeopardy then, and 2,000 years later today, they're still not in jeopardy. Because throughout time, God has always been faithful to preserve a remnant of the elect. We've known this, the true Israel who believes and is faithful to keep covenant. One scholar said this, I think we have it on the screen, Chris. Yes, the indestructible existence of a believing remnant at all periods of their history. God is faithful to preserve his people. Now, Paul references the faithful remnant back in Elijah's day, and he says that remnant still exists today. But what marks them is that they are, notice, they're chosen by grace. Man, if I could put that on my status, I'm taking a Facebook break for the next month, but if I could make that my status, just my ever-living status, chosen by grace. Uh, And then he defines grace. He says, grace has to be distinct from the basis of works, or you cannot use the word grace anymore. So don't use the word grace if you're going to sprinkle in works. I think uh, Nick did a great job this morning reminding us uh, that faith is not to have works sprinkled in it. Now, I I can try to start calling a donut a bagel, but just because it has a hole in the center and it's round, it doesn't mean it's the same thing. Uh, You eat bagels in New York and you eat donuts in heaven. We know the difference there, don't we? So you can't call grace grace if it's based upon works. You're defining it wrong. Uh, Listen to these words. This one scholar said, you cannot split the difference between these two. So introduce any element of works into the equation, and it drives out grace. True grace, not on paper, but in action, faithfully preached, will drive all works of the law before it. You see, God's grace is not something that is based on works. And we can praise God for that, can't we? You can't pray enough prayers, read enough verses, do enough missions, obey enough commands, donate enough dollars, or do enough spiritual disciplines to merit God's favor for your salvation. And that should drive us to reverence and rest. Isn't that great? You don't have to cram the night before. You already have the A. God's remnant is chosen by grace. He's speaking of Israel within Israel, but the same is true of all God's people. 
We are chosen by grace. Richard Baxter, the great Puritan pastor, said, What an astonishing thought it will be to think of the unmeasurable difference between our deservings and our receivings. Oh, how free was all this love and how free is this enjoyed glory. So then let deserved be written on the floor of hell, but on the door of heaven and life may it be written the free gift. You see, it is all a gift of God's grace. We are chosen by grace. And if we add the merit of works, it's no longer defined as grace. So the remnant will be chosen by grace. And Paul has these four different ways of proving that. Now, let's look at this second section, the rest. Now, again, we're not referring to resting from labor. If there's a remnant in Israel, what about the rest of Israel? And that's what Paul addresses here. Verse 7, look at it with me. This is a summary verse. And then we have two and a half, I'll say, two and a half Old Testament references to back up his claims. Remember, Romans 9 through 11 has at least one third of every Old Testament quote that Paul gives in all of his writings. So just in these three chapters, one third of all of his quotes from the Old Testament. Now, I said two and a half because the first verse is actually Deuteronomy 29.4. And then what Paul does is he does a little composite mashup with Isaiah 29.10. So look at verse 7. He says, here's the summary statement. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And then he gives us, like I said, Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29. As it is written. And then he quotes these two verses. Let me show you these two verses on the screen. First, Deuteronomy 29. It says, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. To Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So obviously this happened after all of those events, after God had led Israel out of Egypt and they had dwelt in the wilderness and before they entered into the promised land. So Moses is saying, hey, in the midst of all that God did, at the end of the day, you have not been given by God a heart to understand or eyes to see. Well, kind of connecting that idea, he then quotes Isaiah 29, which is also on the screen, the second part. And this is what Isaiah says, For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. So he quotes, did you catch that? He quotes both the law and the prophets. And in both of those instances, the representative of God's people, the representative that is supposed to speak to God's people, whether Moses or Isaiah, both of them affirm that it is that Yahweh has not given the entire population eyes to see or ears to hear. That's the argument. And and Israel, as a broad ethnic community, especially according to Isaiah, is like a person in deep sleep. Now, you could use the analogy of someone in a coma. If you think about someone in a deep sleep, someone in a coma. Someone who's in a coma is unconscious, and medically, they have minimal brain activity. They're alive, aren't they? We wouldn't say they're dead. They're alive, but they show no signs of awareness. They're not, you're not able to like, currently wake them up. And so Paul says in verse 7, the broader community of ethnic Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Well, what was it seeking? Well, Paul already told us back 
in Romans chapter 9. You want to jot these verses down. Paul's already told us. He told us in verses 30 through 32 that the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness and they've attained it by faith. Verse 31, but Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law because they did not pursue it by faith as if it were based on works. Okay, so are you guys still with me? What was Israel seeking? They were seeking righteousness, but they were seeking righteousness through the law and not by faith. And Paul says in verse 7 here, he says, but the elect did obtain it. So the elect within Israel, they did obtain it. They were obtaining it by faith. They were true children of Abraham. But the rest of Israel, the ethnic community, were hardened. So we've said this many times, the Israel within Israel the believing Jews, they obtained righteousness because they sought righteousness by faith. They weren't trying to work for it. They were trusting God for it. And the rest of the community had hard hearts. Paul even uses the example of Pharaoh. They had hearts that were hardened because they were unbelieving. And God's sovereignty over the hardening is there, but the person still hardens their heart and is guilty and complicit in that hardening. Thus, they're guilty. I was trying to like illustrate this for you. Like, is there a graphic that can capture? I keep doing this with my hands to kind of demonstrate, but I think we have a picture, right, Chris? So you've got ethnic Israel, the greater body. And then within Israel, you have the true believing Israel. <laughs> I didn't mean for this, but that actually does look like a donut, doesn't it? <laughs> There's two in one sermon, my goodness. Now, what I want us to, to grasp is that though there is all ethnic Israel, within that larger group, there is true Israel. And so in verses 9 and 10, Paul brings up David now. So not only the law, not only the prophets, but even in the wisdom literature. He quotes Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. Notice verse 9. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Sounds like a strange prayer, doesn't it? Sounds like a strange song. Remember, this is a psalm. So, wow, in the song lyrics, we're praying for people's backs to be bent. We're praying for stumbling blocks. We're praying disaster. Well, remember, in context, uh, David is praying, through, all the psalmists are praying or singing different things. And sometimes the psalmist will pray what's called an imprecatory prayer. That's praying that God would enact justice upon the enemies of God. And so in Psalm 69, David is singing about a righteous man himself who's experiencing unjust treatment from the enemies of God. And he's praying that God would defend him in the midst of unprovoked hostility and that God would bring down his foes. Now you guys can read Psalm 69 later, but it's actually a messianic psalm. It's a very quoted psalm in the New Testament because in many ways it foreshadows the cross. In fact, Right before the verse that Paul quotes here, Psalm 69, 21, it references, where have you seen this before? It references the sour wine extended to drink. Remember we saw that at the cross? The enemies of Christ extended sour wine for him to drink. Roman soldiers offered to him while he was being crucified. Psalm 69 also was quoted when referring to the zeal that consumed Jesus when he went into God's house and into the temple driving out the charlatans. And Peter even quotes Psalm 69 when referencing replacing Judas in Acts chapter 1. So it's an important psalm. It's a messianic psalm. 
And in Psalm 69, here's what David's praying. He's praying, may the very table that my enemies are sitting at, the place that provides food and comfort and sustenance, may that very table become something that traps them. So the emphasis that Paul is making in quoting this is on the specific prayer where he says, let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. That's why he's quoting that. He's, he's referencing all parts of the Old Testament to make the point that this broader community of ethnic Israel has been hardened. Their eyes have been darkened so that they cannot see. In fact, we know these words from 2 Corinthians 3 where Paul says their minds were hardened. For to this day, and this even happens today in the synagogue, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So though there's always a remnant of believing Jews descended from Abraham, you could call them the Isaacs and the Jacobs, there will always be the unbelieving. You could call them the Ishmaels and the Esau's. Oh, they're descended from Abram. They're, they would say his blood runs in our veins, but not as true children of faith. You guys with me? You guys understand the argument Paul's making? Okay, both of you do. Good. Well, in verse 11, Paul comes back to the question he asks in verse 1. Some people break this section off um, into a different category, and you even have a uh, heading that says in your ESVs, Gentiles grafted in. But I think Paul's train of thought continues here. He returns to verse 1, the same question. So he says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? All right, so the, uh, the 15-year-old in the back who wasn't listening uh, has suddenly stood up in the back of the Roman church and said, yes. Uh, and, and Paul, you would think his argument would be, yes, yes, they stumbled in order that they might fall. But then he would quickly sit down and go, whoops, <laughs> that was the wrong answer. In other words, Paul's question is, is this a permanent condition? See, verse 11 paints the picture of not just stumbling, which all of us do at some point in our lives. Some of us have tripped and we've fallen. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail when that's happened in my life, but we've stumbled, we've tripped over things. But see, his argument here is not just a, a stumble that you can get back up from and you're fine. He's talking about, did they stumble that they might fall? In other words, that they could never recover from. Is this a fall which is beyond recovery. And his argument is, did they stumble to never return? His question should be answered with, by no means. And he answers it that way. You'd expect him to say, yeah. But he says, by no means. Rather, verse 11, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. So God was at work all along. When Israel was fallen, it wasn't, that they would reject him and that that would be their utter destruction. No, God was still at work. In fact, Paul says, when salvation came to the Gentiles, God was still at work kind of allowing Israel to have envy. And then he says in verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I just wanna pause here for a minute. When the Jews rejected the gospel, and we read about that in the book of Acts, God actually began to work salvation among the Gentiles. As he was doing that, he was simultaneously producing jealousy or envy in the Jew. And this is well documented. 
In at least four separate occasions in Acts, Luke the doctor records the Jewish rejection of the gospel leading to the Gentiles receiving the gospel. So here's a verse for you, Acts 13. Here's one example. It says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. And since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, sounds like a burn, doesn't it? I guess you're unworthy of eternal life, but he's right. He's right. He's honest. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, how do you think the Jews responded to that? They, they responded with an obstinate jealousy, and yet the verse tells us when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is a great picture of God's sovereign work in the Jews' rejection, but the Gentiles, all who were appointed to eternal life believed. And we know from Scripture the gospel was first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, and so the good news of Christ's redemptive work was preached not last in the synagogue as an afterthought, but first. First in the synagogue, secondly in the marketplace, among those who had little or no reference to Judaism. And Paul says, through the Jews' rejection of the gospel, the Gentiles, of all people, received salvation. And this was ultimately to invoke envy among ethnic Israel. And we certainly see times throughout Acts if you're taking note, I won't put it on the screen, but Acts 5.17, Acts 13.45, and Acts 17.5. So Acts 5.13 and 17. These are specific moments when, when Israel began to uh, have their jealousy stirred up. So what Paul is saying is that the Gentiles came to faith, and this was an intermediate stage. And this is a positive thing, this jealous envy. This is a positive thing. Because it's going to, listen, it's going to stir the comatose awake. They are, Israel, ethnic, unbelieving Israel is going to see, they're going to see the Gentiles receiving the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God. They're going to see the peace which surpasses all understanding. They're going to see divine favor coming upon people who never knew God. They're going to see a community of charity and truth. They're going to see God's blessing on these people who once were not a people, and they're going to yearn to participate in it all. Now, it's not as if the Gentile believers are not going to suddenly have a heart for their Jewish, uh, you could say, you know, brothers in the community. Uh, it wasn't that the Gentiles weren't going to start praying. In fact, I believe the early church had a big synagogue ministry. How do we pray for the hardened ethnic Jew? Um, and I think ultimately they, they prayed and were actively at work in uh, not only stirring up that envy, but also sharing the good news. And Paul certainly had an active ministry uh, at the very end of the book of Acts. He's continuing uh, to proclaim the word of God without hindrance. So let me show you this visually. Paul's argument is this. If the trespass, the sin of Israel, led to riches for the whole world, and the failure of Israel led, led to riches for the Gentiles, that's our salvation, well, then what would that look like if the full number of those who God would have appointed for eternal life, what would happen if, if that small little, I showed you that donut hole, what if that donut hole grew to much more? What if it began to fill out much bigger? How much more would this uh, produce goodness? But he kind of doesn't tell us. He just asks the question, how much more? 
And we'll dive into this a little bit more next week. Uh, but the full number of ethnic Israelites throughout time who believe on Messiah will prove to be a monumental blessing to the world. Now, we went over it too quickly, but circle that word riches for a minute in, in the text, in verse 12. Riches. Paul describes this idea of riches in Ephesians 3.8. Notice on the screen, he says, to me, though I'm, he earlier said he's the foremost of sinners. Here he says, I'm the least of all the saints. This grace was given, why? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul here refers to it, another translation says, the unfathomable, the unsearchable, the riches that are hard to even talk about. Well, what's he speaking of? Is he is he speaking about the financial wealth of Jesus that spills into your bank account? Obviously not. I'm sorry, Creflo Dollar. That is not what he's referring to here. This word unsearchable, the only other time it's used in the entire New Testament is at the end of Romans 11. And at the end of Romans 11, you can turn the page, look at verse 33. Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches. There's that word. And wisdom and knowledge of God, or here's the word, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This worshipful benediction uh, is what Paul is caught up in as he thinks about, as he looks at God's sovereign purpose and the mystery and the mercy of it. He's just, he's just called up into this worshipful benediction. So what he's saying is these are not common, trite, normal, ordinary riches. These are unfathomable. These are unsearchable. These are overwhelming blessings that God has blessed us with in the heavenly realms. And this has come to us. Praise God. This has come to the Gentile. And that came to us, praise God, because ethnic Israel rejected the gospel. Isn't that awesome? That in the midst of someone saying no to Christ, you and I, unless there's a believing Jew here, we can talk later, that's pretty much all of us have been brought into the family of God, the, the people of God, because of God's sovereign mercy. Now, we'll dive into this topic more in the next two weeks as we continue studying Romans 11. So make sure next week you read ahead verses 13 through 24 uh, for next Sunday. Pastor Mike is going to be teaching us through um, a very, again, this is a very difficult text, so I encourage you uh, to read ahead and to come ready. Now, this, this section is very difficult for us, um, and I want us to make sure we make three important application points this morning. So if you're taking note, I want to apply this in three ways. Number one, we've already talked about the grace of God, but I want to challenge us to understand and embrace the grace of God. According to verse 6, God's people, you and I, will never be defined by what we do for God any more than God's people are defined by a certain race or defined by circumcision or defined by being good, kind people. We're saved by grace apart from works. So we can't redefine grace. It's either all of God or you and I get to share in some of the credit. Isn't that something to praise God about? So we need to understand and define grace rightly, but then we need to embrace it. We need to embrace it in our salvation and we need to embrace it in our sanctification. There's an incredible book that just came out. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's called The Five Solas of the Reformation. <laughs> I commend you to, reading, uh, to read it. A great author, Dan Sardinus, wrote the book. 
And um, in Tuesday's devotional, here's what we read. We read this. God is always the chooser and believers are always the chosen. God is always the elector and believers are always the elected. This is so good. God did not choose people because they were great. He chose them because he is great. He did not choose people because of something in them. He chose them because of what is in him. God's grace is unconditional. This means that there is nothing in the sinner that motivates God to choose them. Grace did not begin at your conversion. Instead, it began before time itself. God has chosen us purely by his grace. You see, once you grasp this, that the remnant that was chosen by grace, and not because they were upstanding, outstanding, or, or because they were understanding. No, they were crooked. They were clueless. They were corrupt. Once you realize this, you start to realize, wait a minute, the same thing is true of me. And so what unites every Christian is that we are the fellowship of the undeserving, blood-bought, sin-washed saints. So ensure today that you understand the grace of God, that you understand it in your life, and that you embrace it without qualification. We don't need grace with an asterisk or a yeah, but. We just need grace. The old hymn says, Sinners Jesus will receive. Sound this word of grace to all. Who the heavenly pathway leave, all who linger, all who fall. Sing it over and over again. Christ receiveth sinful men. Make the message clear and plain. Christ receiveth sinful men. So sinner, stop making excuses for your sin. Embrace the grace of God today. Come without qualification. Come with your sin. Come with your baggage. Come with all of your trauma. Bring your sin, your rebellion to the cross. And don't try to make up for it. Just bring it. If you're a saint this morning, stop trying to perform for the Lord and start enjoying the goodness of the Lord. Understand and embrace his wondrous grace. Keith Green wrote this song, uh, many different songs, but uh, he began, uh, when I hear the praises start, he, he began it this way, my son, my son, why are you striving? You can't add one thing to what's been done for you. And that word, or that song was so encouraging for me as a younger Christian who's filled with legalism and I've got to work my way for God's favor. Uh, what an offense to try and put a plus sign to the finished work of Christ. So church, his grace isn't grace if you add to it. Understand it, embrace it today as a child simply receives the undeserved love of their father. Well, secondly, I want us to understand that the story is still unfolding. So pray, wait, and watch. See, Paul pointed out God has not rejected his people because he himself, Paul himself, was a part of ethnic Israel, but he was also a part of spiritual Israel. So think of the Christians who had been praying for Saul. Just think about that. Oh, man, Saul is coming to attack. And how elated they must have been knowing their prayers for the salvation of this blaspheming enemy of the church would be answered in the affirmative. And that Paul would one day be one of the greatest influences in the church of Jesus Christ, even penning much of Holy Scripture. That would have been so encouraging. So today, in our lives, we need to know there is still a remnant within Israel that believes. God is still at work in ethnic Israel. He's still at work among the Jews. He will still receive glory in his long suffering. And in our own lives, in the lives of the people we've prayed for and continue to pray for, the story is still unfolding. So I just want to encourage you, don't lose heart, but take heart and watch. Continue and pray, waiting on the Lord until they cross, that person you're praying for crosses the threshold 
from life to death. Until that day, the Lord is still at work. So pray for them. Continue to um, take heart. Um, Christopher Ash says, we see a religious unbeliever who's been given privileges of Bible knowledge, perhaps a Christian family or friends, membership of a good youth group, baptism and so on, but has hardened his heart. And we fear this means he's fallen beyond recovery. But Paul says no. So continue to pray, continue to wait, continue to watch and remind yourself that the story is still unfolding. A stumble isn't necessarily a fall. You may be praying for someone. I'm speaking to a lot of people right now. I've asked people who are deconstructing their faith to talk with me and talk, let's talk through it. And I've had like at least half a dozen guys just reach out. And so I'm praying for them. And I'm saying, hey, this may not be a fall beyond recovery. So trust the Lord, wait and watch. Finally, number three, let's enjoy and grow in the riches of Christ. Paul says the Jewish rejection of the gospel has led to riches for the world and more specifically for the Gentiles. And so may we... Uh, lean into. May we enjoy and grow in the riches of Christ. Uh, let's go and bow our heads this morning, and I want to just close with Ephesians 1 and 2 and be reminded of what we have, what riches we have in Christ. So bow your heads with me, and in a moment we'll stand together and we'll sing. The scriptures declare that we are chosen to be holy and blameless, that we are loved, that we're predestined for adoption to himself, that we are redeemed, forgiven, lavished with grace and all wisdom and insight, that you and I have been shown the mystery of God's will. We've been united with his people. We've been raised to life and given peace. Not only that, but we've been given access to God and we've been joined into one new body of believers. Rest in the riches that are yours in Christ. Father, we thank you this morning for what you have done producing envy in Israel and working salvation among the Gentiles. You've done that in our lives. And Lord, even as you're at work today in our lives, you're also still at work in a remnant. And Lord, we can praise you for that, uh, for the mystery of your will. Lord, sometimes we don't understand when we're praying for someone and they don't come to saving faith right away. It seems like an utter fall, that they've rejected you completely. But Lord, we know you're still at work. So Lord, give us faith, give us rest, give us peace, that you will work salvation in those who are appointed for eternal life. Lord, may we join you in your work, as we learned last week, to boldly proclaim the good news because faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Lord, these are difficult texts, but we thank you for the mercy that is ours. It's real and it is ours in Christ. We worship you today for Christ and for his glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.